Hey everybody, Greg Laurie here. You're listening to the Greg Laurie Podcast. And my objective is to deliver, hopefully, compelling practical insights and faith, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. To find out more about our ministry, just go to our website, harvest.org. So thanks for joining me for this podcast. Today we have a very special treat in store here. We're going to speak with a prolific author whose name is Randy Alcorn. Now, if you can be an expert on the topic of heaven, then Randy is that guy. And then someone would ask, well, how can you be an expert on heaven when you've never been there? Well, Randy is not one of these guys that's written a book alleging to have gone to heaven and returning to tell us about it. But he is a guy who has spent a good deal of his life studying the topic of the afterlife and the new earth. He's probably read every book that's been written on the subject. In addition, he has studied scripture. And and really, I think that his volume on the topic of heaven, which I have right here, is probably the best book I've seen on the subject. I think every believer ought to have this in their library. It's just really the go-to book on the afterlife. And if your questions don't get answered uh, reading this book, I'd be somewhat surprised because he addresses every aspect of heaven in this book. He's also written other books like If God is Good and What Heaven Is to the Afterlife. This is to the topic of human suffering. I think it's the finest volume I've read on the topic and I've read a lot of books as well. Plus Randy has written a book called uh, The Treasure Principle, which is right here. And then uh, here's one that I just came across, Seeing the Unseen. And now Randy can add to his writing uh books or all the books he's written, a comic book called Eternity. Now really they call these graphic novels now. They're very popular, especially with younger people. Amazing illustrations. So we'll talk about this in a few moments. But um, he was a pastor for 14 years. Now he is a director of a ministry called Eternal Perspective Ministries. And he, he speaks on this topic a lot. But Randy doesn't do a lot of guest speaking. So we're really glad that he has made time out of a very busy schedule to come and join us here. So let's give a warm harvest welcome to Randy Alcorn. Randy, welcome. Good to have you. So Randy, today I wanted to talk about three basic subjects. Uh, One of them is the topic of human suffering. Uh, The second one is, would be the afterlife, heaven, hell, what happens beyond the grave. And then finally, in light of these topics, uh, what an eternal perspective is. You know, how how do we live on this earth in light of the hope that we have as believers? And finally, I would like to talk about male pattern baldness. And this is something that (laughs) you do not struggle with, but I do. Um... Well, again, it's great to have you. We're going to have a biblical discussion. And, and while we're talking, look at the, let me see your Bible, if you would, please. Now, this is one beat-up Bible. This is, look at this Bible. This is Randy Alcorn's Bible. I mean, look at this. It's been said, a Bible that is falling apart is an indication of a life that isn't. Well, then, your Bible is falling apart, Randy. Every page is marked. Uh, and this is obviously a very well-used Bible. So as we're going through these questions, Randy will open up the scripture. We'll be reading something together and we invite them to join us. This is a biblical discussion, but instead of doing it from behind a pulpit, we're doing it at a desk. 
We're going to talk about these topics. I'd encourage you all to take notes. He'll give you a lot of references, things you'll want to go back to later. So let's dive right into the problem of pain. You know, nobody wants pain in their life. Nobody wants to suffer. But when pain shows up and moves in, you don't really have a say-so in the matter. And probably if you're talking to a non-believer, it won't be long until the question is asked in some way, shape, or form, how could a God of love uh, allow suffering in the world? C.S. Lewis said, quote, the problem of pain is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. But then there's the pain that the Christian faces that sometimes doesn't make sense to us as believers. And in your book, If God is Good, you write, quote, most of us don't give focused thought to evil and suffering until we experience them. This forces us to formulate perspective on the fly at a time when our thinking is muddled and we're exhausted and consumed by pressing issues. People who have been there will attest it's far better to think through suffering in advance. So maybe those that are listening today, uh, things are going reasonably well. But there might be somebody listening, and they're not just here, but this will be seen by people later on the internet. It'll be seen, heard on our radio broadcast. There would be a person listening or hearing this that has just come face to face with the worst crisis of their life. And probably the first question that's come to their mind is, why is this happening to me? So maybe a two-part question. Why is there suffering in general? And then why do Christians have to suffer? Mm. Well, great questions. And I, I think the Bible is clear uh, in terms of the answers. One is that God created a world where he said, Genesis one thirty one. he looked at everything he'd created and said, behold, it's very good. There was no suffering originally in the world. Suffering is the result of sin coming into the world. So sometimes people will say, well, why would a good God design the world with all of this suffering? I don't get it. And the answer is, he didn't make the world with all this suffering. He made it different than that. Mm -hmm. Then we made some choices, sin, that brought suffering into the world now we're living with the consequences. But the great thing is, according to the Bible, God doesn't give up. And he's still sovereign. He's still in control. Define that quickly, sovereign. Yes. What does it mean when you say God is sovereign? That God is totally in control of all things. Mm. Nothing surprises God. He has complete knowledge. He also has complete power. And sometimes we do a disservice to God by thinking that an individual human being or a demon, or Satan himself can do something that totally dismantles or unravels the plan of God. But the Bible teaches that God is bigger than that. He's infinitely big. And that even when people sin, like Joseph to his brothers in Genesis 45, and again in Genesis 50, you intended it for evil. God intended it for good. Uh, He says in Genesis 45 to his brothers, uh, God sent me down to Egypt. In other words, you did a sinful thing, but God even worked through your sinful thing thing to get me to the place he wanted me to be so that many lives years later could be saved. So if you have this perspective that God loves you completely and that God is in control completely, these will be a huge 
perspective-giving commodity. I mean, you're able to look at life through that lens, and you realize, yeah, there's a lot of evil and suffering in the world, but it is a temporary condition. If I am a child of God, if I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I will spend eternity with him in heaven where there will be, according to Revelation 21, he'll wipe away the tears from every eye, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, and that's his promise. You know, it's interesting, uh, in the book of Genesis, talking about Joseph, he said to his brothers, you know, uh, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. But then you quote where Joseph said, God sent me down. Interesting, because sometimes when pain comes our way, we say, I don't know why this is happening, this is horrible. But then with the passing of time, there are seasons in life where we can look back on what was clearly a bad thing and actually say, that was a good thing, and even move from God allowed it to God did it. Right. But there are things that happen in life that never seem to be good, yes. and they don't make so, uh, sense this side of heaven, do they? They don't. And this is sometimes where we take uh, Romans eight twenty eight, yeah. great, wonderful verse. Um, depending on the translation, God causes all things to work together for good right. to those who love God, um, and. Yet, we can take that verse which is true, but we can share it with people at the wrong time and the wrong context. Very true. So, for instance, when your son Christopher died, if somebody came up to you, and maybe somebody did, I don't know, and said, oh, well, you know, Greg, don't worry about it because Romans 8.28, uh, you know, all things work together for good, to which you're saying, "Don't, don't use the word good in the same yeah. sentence with the death of my yeah. precious son. And this is what we sometimes have to be very careful of is you can take the truth of scripture, but yeah. there is a right time and a right so way true. to share it. And when a person then has been in their grief for a while, yeah. then they may be struggling for perspective and to be able to uh, reassure uh, reunion with loved ones who mm. knew Christ and you know Jesus and you'll be together with them and all of that. And maybe when the time is right, be able to say, now we don't know how, but this promise in Romans 8 applies to suffering. This whole chapter is about suffering. Yeah. And so even the things that are bad, God doesn't make the bad thing good, but he takes all the bad things together and works them in concert for a great good. Well, that's a great insight, and I think it's so true. When you quote that verse to a person, there's a right and a wrong thing to say. I think when you're ministering to a person who has lost a loved one, less is more. I think Job's friends had it right initially. When they saw Job from a distance and they began to weep with him. Uh, You know, after our our son went to be with the Lord, I spoke at a conference that I was scheduled to be at a couple of months afterwards. And Evie Tornquist was there. You ever heard of Evie? You know, is she a popular Christian singer? I didn't even really know Evie that well. But she saw me and she started crying and hugged me. That did more for me than all the little sermonettes that people gave me because she she was just simply weeping with someone who wept. Right. I was touched that she was touched. And and it was really when the counselors of Job started talking that the problems began. But coming back uh, to what you said earlier about the devil having to get permission, you know, you remember the story in the book of Job, there was that heavenly conversation. And as I've said jokingly sometimes, 
I've said to the Lord, Lord, if you're ever for a fleeting moment feeling proud of me, please don't brag on me in front of the devil because I saw what happened to Job. Keep it to yourself because, you know, God's bragging on Job in heaven. Have you considered my servant Job a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and shuns evil? The devil challenges that remark. God allows the enemy to bring a series of calamities into Job's life, but with restriction. He can't just run willy-nilly. And that's because there is a hedge around us and God knows what we can handle. But there might be someone listening to this right now and they're saying, well, I have more than I can handle. Uh, Is that possible for a Christian? Well, Scripture says that God will not test us beyond what we're able to endure, but will with the the test, and that word for test, trial, temptation, it's translated different ways. It's the same Greek word. But he will provide a means of escape that we may be able to bear it. Now, yeah. so bearing an escape may sound different. Escape may sound like, oh, I don't have to deal with it anymore. Get out. No, there are some lifelong pressures, suffering that we have to deal yeah. with. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata and many yes. other people for a lifetime or, or the greater part of a lifetime in a wheelchair. And so you, you, you don't think of that as a passing suffering because it will last the rest of her life. Yes. Uh, God has not chosen to heal her to this point. Many no. people have prayed over her, uh, but for whatever reason, God in his perfect plan, and we can see a lot of the reasons, a ministry that's been unbelievable yeah. and worldwide, and look how God has used it to encourage other people. But the point is, it is a passing suffering in that it will not last. Right. It will come to an end. It will come to an end with her death or with the return of Christ, whichever Sorry. comes first. And that reassurance is that, yeah, these light and momentary afflictions, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about, well, they don't seem light. They don't seem momentary. They can go on and on. But compared to the weight of glory for all eternity, they're far outweighed. Right. You talked last time about the like the rock of Gibraltar, but then a planet. Do you use that illustration again? That was yeah, a good way of putting it. It's, it's like, okay, say, let's scales. take the, the, yeah, you've got these scales right. and uh, both sides here, and you think, okay, my present suffering is so great, it's so immense, it's like the rock of Gibraltar. I mean, right. you, you, do you get any bigger than that? And it just feels like it weighs me down. But then God says over here, he's not minimizing the rock of Gibraltar. That's a big rock. Yeah. But now he's putting on the other side of the, the, the scales the planet Jupiter. Yeah. Wow, that's a m- major difference. So God doesn't minimize our present suffering right. by calling it light and momentary. He just says, compared to the glory and eternity right. in resurrected bodies, right. in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, with resurrected family of God, serving him for all eternity on a new earth, wow. In comparison, light and momentary suffering. Exactly. Do you think Christians suffer less more or about the same as people who are not Christians? I think uh, there are times where we suffer less because of the very assurance that we have in our hearts that relieves us of some suffering and even in the midst of other suffering gives us this promise, blood-bought promise by the blood of Jesus Christ that things will be better. And so that becomes the light at the end of the tunnel. But in terms of just objective outside types of suffering, the rates of, uh, of cancer uh, or the number of car accidents and other tragedies and all of that, 
that would be very much, I think, the same yeah. scattered out. The among rain people. falls on the just and the unjust. I mean. Exactly. <clears throat> and, and but then there is a special suffering yeah. that Christians undergo. That's persecution. True. Now there are some unbelievers who are persecuted for other types of things and reasons, but we are promised in Scripture that we will suffer. And, and Scripture says, don't be surprised at the fiery right. ordeal that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. It says that in 1 Peter 4. Yeah. We shouldn't view it as strange and unusual. And I think one of the things that happens, Greg, and you've seen this, is that Christians start believing health and wealth gospel, prosperity yeah. theology, and then they have an expectation of God, and they act as if God has promised that all will go smoothly yeah. in their lives. Have any of you noticed that not everything does go smoothly in your <laughs> I've life? I've noticed yeah. that. Right. And, and, and the thing is, what we do is we set ourselves up to be disillusioned with God. Yeah. I've had people say to me, God promised me this, this, this good life, and look, he hasn't come through with his promise. And I say, give me the chapter and verse where he promised that this life would be easy. And right. I can give you dozens and dozens where he promised it would be hard. Right. After Romans 8.28 is Romans 8.29, which is profound to think about. Good. Um, that's, a, that's why this man is your pastor. <laughs> and I'm not. So we all quote, you know, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those that love God. <laughs> Now they're called according to his purpose. But then it goes on in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his own dear son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's end game, if you will, is to make us like Christ. But um, let's shift gears now from suffering and let's talk about the afterlife. You know, there's probably no topic out there where there is more confusion than this topic. Of course, there's a plethora of books on the afterlife. And it seems like more and more these days, you're reading of people who have, are telling of their out-of-body experiences. They died and went to heaven. Some are even put up by Christian publishers. And, and you read these, and I'm amazed at how sometimes even believers will read these books and say, oh, well, they said it in the book and it must not be true, or it must be true. And they're not comparing it to what this book says, which is the only authoritative book on the topic. And we have all these misconceptions ranging from heaven is this boring place to, oh, when we die, we become angels. So why all the confusion on the topic of heaven? Well, first, let me really um, reaffirm what you were saying there, Greg, about how important it is for us uh, in, in, in Acts 17, verse 11. Right. The Bereans were of more noble character right. than the Thessalonians. For they received the message. Now, this was a message being preached by the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Okay, they received the message with great eagerness yeah. and examined the scriptures every day. Mm -hmm. Every day to see if what Paul said was true. Wow, That's right. if you're going to examine the preaching of the Apostle Paul by the scriptures... Yeah. Everything should be examined by the scriptures. And this is why I think many of these books and many of these reports of the afterlife, you know, we can't definitively say, since God can do anything he wants, you know, if God wants to send somebody to heaven and then they come back, he can do that. But whatever they say, we better examine it by scripture. Yeah. And if it doesn't hold up to scripture, we can know for sure it's not true. And there are things that are said like... Uh, for instance, I think there's many things that are good and right that don't 
conflict with scripture uh, about uh, uh, Colton uh, Burpo, the boy um, who tells the story, you know, heaven is for real. Uh, his dad, you know, has written this book uh, and this is what his son experienced in heaven. There are things in there that I will say, well, when he talks about people in heaven have angels and they have circles around their head like halos. See, where in the Bible yeah. does anyone ever have a halo in heaven or on earth around yeah. their head? There are some people who physically shine like Moses, but that halo thing is an artistic thing mm-hmm. in the ancient world and then revived again in the Middle Ages. And then people are, never have wings in Scripture. There's not right. one single place. Angels sometimes have wings, sometimes don't have wings. People never have wings. So when, a, when somebody says, well, we know people have wings in heaven because after all, it says it right in the book, Heaven is for Real. I, I, these people are, are genuine Christians who love Jesus. I'm not questioning motives or anything else. I'm just saying, uh, wow, some of those things just don't match up with what Scripture says. And I think one of the worst things is, then it opens up the minds of people to start believing these books and a more recent one by, I think it's uh, Mary Neal, To Heaven and Back, also published by a Christian publisher. Well, she says that she went to heaven and Jesus or an angel, she's not sure which, which makes you wonder, uh, really, you don't know whether that's Jesus or an angel, but one of, either Jesus or an angel says to her, look at all of these spirits up in heaven that are about to be born into the world down below. They have a right relationship with God, then they're born into the world down below and spend the rest of their lives trying to regain the relationship with God they once had as pre-existent spirits in heaven. That is a totally unbiblical teaching, and yet a Christian publisher publishes it, and you say, well, if if an angel or Jesus said that to her, I guess it must be true. No, this is true. That's right. Amen. That's right. So I posted on my Facebook page, I'm talking with Randy Alcorn, any questions one guy asked, and this is along the lines of what you just said. Uh, her name is Leah. I've always worried about or wondered about angels and their place in heaven. Is it possible that humans are transformed into angels into heaven or are angels a separate entity in heaven created differently to serve God? So we don't become an angel when we get to heaven, do we? We don't. And this gets to something that's very uh, critical to understand. There is a biblical doctrine that could be called the doctrine of continuity. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that people always remain people. We are created in God's image. We are now. We will be for all eternity. We don't become a different kind of being. We become glorified human beings, meaning we're still human. And you see that in... uh, in Job 19, where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and yeah. that I will see him. Right. And here it is uh, in verse 25. I know that uh, of chapter 19 of Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Interesting. Not he will just stay up there in, uh, in, in heaven, but he will stand upon the earth. And then Job says, and after my skin has been destroyed... Yet in my flesh, I will see God. There are people who say that the Old Testament never refers to a resurrection. Well, if you've read Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, you know that's not true. It's a clear statement about resurrection. But isn't this? I mean, this is the oldest written book in the Bible, people say. And it says, after my skin has been destroyed. Well, your skin, it's your body. Your body has been destroyed. Yet in my flesh, I will see God. That's resurrection. 
Yes. I myself, and here's the continuity. Job says, I myself will see him with my own eyes, resurrected eyes. Right. And then he says, I and not another. Right. How clear can that be? Job is saying, it will really be me. So, when Greg and I are in heaven, and any of the rest of you here who know Jesus Christ be in heaven someday, when we're in heaven, we will, it will be Greg made new. It will be Randy, but Randy without sin. And so it will be the real us, just like it will be the real Job. And you see this. I think you'll be close to what you are now, but I'll be a lot better. Uh, Better than you are now or better better than than me? No, better than I am now. (laughs) But I think you'll be pretty close to the way you are now, Fisher. No. Uh, But uh, let's let's hope not. Uh, But... (laughs) But the, tr- but the truth is, it will really be us. And you know, sometimes yes. people get very confused on this. Yeah. Because they say, well, I don't think we'll even remember anything. They yeah. take one verse in Isaiah 65, right. completely out of context, right. and say, well, we're not going to remember. Well, what are we told? We're told in Romans 14, 12, that each one of us will give an account of our entire lives. True. You have to remember to do that. Exactly. In other words, we'll have to have better memories. Can you remember everything in your life? No, you can't now. In other words, our memories of this life will have to be better, not worse. We'll know as we are known. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so it's not like the the brain wipe in Men in Black where you forget everything. You're going to not know less because then that addresses the subject. Well, we recognize one another in heaven. Well, why would we know less in heaven than we know on earth? Well, no more. So clearly we would recognize one another. We would have recollection, but I think it would be with perspective, right? Exactly. And that's the difference because, you know, sometimes people say, well, okay, if we could remember yeah. the things on heaven earth, wouldn't we be would heaven. be sad. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing, if we could see the things on earth when we were in heaven, we'd be sad. But what we have to remember is, mm-hmm. when we get to heaven, our, uh, our peace, will n- our peace of mind will not be dependent upon ignorance. Right. It will be dependent upon perspective. Great and statement. God will give us that perspective. Like I have little granddaughters, you know, and like uh, the other day they were playing with one of their dolls and the head came off. Well, that's like the end of the world to a grandchild and i'm just looking at it. i say now don't worry it's okay i'll take care of it and no you know but i'm just going to go buy her a new one i know that but i have the adult perspective they have a right. child's perspective so on earth we have a child's perspective if you will in heaven we'll see it from god's perspective oh that thing that looks so bad from this side i look at it from this side and i see how god used it for good so it's not ignorance but it's like you said perspective so that brings us now to the obvious question, you know, do people in heaven know what's going on on earth? Are they sitting up there like in little chairs watching us right now? Uh, or are they completely oblivious to what's happening on earth? This is a question that's asked a lot. I think they were with us in the first part of the message, but they lost interest. And right now, we're, no, <laughs> no, but seriously, people in heaven, uh, we know uh, uh, from several passages of yeah. Scripture, and Revelation 6 is, you is one turn of those. Revelation yeah, 6. turn to Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, um, we have people, uh, martyrs, who've died, right. they've gone to heaven, and then picking up in uh, around verse 9, um, mm-hmm. it talks about those who have been uh, slain because of the word of God. These, these martyrs. are just kind of for clarification. These are people. These are yes. mortals 
who have died on the earth for their faith. So that's why this is important when we're talking about people in heaven. Right. These aren't angels. These are people. And then it says in verse 10, these people have died and gone to be with Jesus. They called out in a loud voice saying, how long sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Hmm. Well, here they clearly remember their lives on earth. Yeah. They clearly remember something very bad, yeah. like they were murdered. Right. I mean, how much worse does it get than that? They clearly remember that, but they have a perspective now. Yet, they still have a longing for justice and judgment, and I think a longing that, that other suffering saints on earth would be delivered from their suffering. So they're saying, how long, O Lord, before you bring judgment uh, and, on those who killed us? And clearly... They know that God has not yet brought judgment on them. Well, how do they know that? Well, presumably because they can see. They can see what's going on on earth, so they know God hasn't yet brought judgment, so they're asking him how long. So I think there's an example of people who remember bad things that happen, see bad things that are happening, and are asking God to intervene in judgment. And God says, wait a little longer until the last of the martyrs dies. And that's, I think, you know, we think of the return of Christ. And one way to ask, you know, when will Christ return? And and people speculate as to days and times and dates. And Jesus told us not to do that, but people do. But the great thing is the way, from God's perspective, what he's saying in this Revelation 6 passage is, I will return after the last martyr has died. And only he knows who that last martyr will be. So, we go to heaven when we die as Christians. But we don't get our glorified body whenever we die. That's a future event, the resurrection. But then we come back to earth, don't we? And then there's going to be a new earth. So I think a lot of people think, well, I'll just die and go to heaven and live there forever. That's actually not what the Bible teaches, is it? It isn't. And, And turn to Revelation 21 And you see very clearly in verse 3, and and let me just preface this as you're turning there, Revelation 21, 3, to say that, okay, when we die, like grandma dies, somebody who loves the Lord dies, they go to be with Jesus. So we we always think of heaven, and properly so right now, of us leaving the earth to go to live with God in God's home, the place where God and the angels live. But the ultimate promise of Scripture, even though that's true for now, is that God, what God will ultimately do is he will bring heaven, and heaven is wherever God specially dwells, wherever his throne is. He will bring that all down to the new earth to dwell with his people. And look at at, at Revelation uh, 21, verse 3, where it says, uh, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. And backing up, it's, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So that new Jerusalem comes down. It's on the earth, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. And then it says, and the loud voice says, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, with them is used three times. So, here's, here's a paradigm shift. We tend to think of 
as it is for the moment, we tend to think of it permanently as if heaven means us going up to live with God in his place. The ultimate heaven will be God coming down from his place to live with us in our place, which will be the new earth. And remember, when we think about the incarnation of Christ, some people sort of act like Jesus, like, took on a body like we might put on a coat and then later take off the coat Mm -hmm. and now he no longer has a body. Oh no, scripture teaches the permanent resurrected body of Christ. He ascended in that same body that this same Jesus, physical Jesus who ate and drank with his disciples, fed them breakfast, who went up to heaven will come again and he will return and he will set up his kingdom. Some believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. I take that position. Other people take different positions. But then following that, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will bring heaven down to earth. We're told the throne of God will be there in that city. And that will be a literal heaven on earth. Now, some people try to make heaven on earth. They try to make this utopia down here. And they say, well, if we just do this and we just do that, we improve the human race, then we'll build ourselves up to perfection and we'll conquer death. That's nonsense. None of that is going to happen. But while we won't bring heaven on earth, God promises he will bring heaven to earth and we will reign with him as his people. Uh, Resurrected people ruling the earth to the glory of God just as God originally intended for Adam and Eve. And we think, well, that was a failure. Adam and Eve briefly reigned, had dominion over the earth to God's glory and then it all went south. Right. Okay, well, no. For eternity, God's people will, as kings and queens, you know, he's the king of kings, but we will rule the new earth to God's glory. Amen. That sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. Come on. Let's talk about the eternal perspective. Okay, so we have this hope of heaven. We have the hope that heaven comes to earth in the new earth. We have the hope of a glorified body. We're going to serve the Lord. We have a future. Sometimes people seem to think that this life on earth is all we have. And so maybe they'll have their bucket list. Uh, There's a guy that wrote a book called A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. And in his book he offered this counsel and I quote, This life is a short journey. Uh, Make sure you fill it up with the most fun and visit all the cool places on earth. He says you need to make life count and so on. His bucket list was uh, attending the Academy Awards and running with the bulls in Spain. <laughs> uh, tragically, the author of the book died at age 47 after hitting his head after a fall in his home. He himself only was able to accomplish half of the items on the list. So I thought you were going to say, jokingly, he died in the bull no. ring. Because well, I'd make that real low on my list. Yeah, that, that is not, that's how to end your life quickly. Yeah. Run with the bulls. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. But... But this guy is saying, oh, you've got to do it all now. So the idea is it's all in the here and now. Oh, man, if you don't do it now, that's it. But there is a future, of course. But should a Christian have a bucket list? Well, here's the interesting thing about the bucket list. It makes an assumption, and it, sometimes it's expressed like this. Well, you only live once mm-hmm. here on earth, or you only go around once. Well, according to the Bible, we go around twice. Yeah. And the second time will never end. Yes. And I mean, that's literally what the Bible teaches. Now, that is a paradigm shift, right? Right. Because 
Now, when I think of, uh, oh, well, I've got to taste a certain kind of food before I die and travel to some country where they serve this food and experience this situation. But the Bible teaches, Jesus probably seven or eight times talked about eating and drinking in God's kingdom. And some people say, do you take that literally? Well, of course we take that literally because in his literal resurrection body, he ate and drank with his disciples. Yeah, that's right. He fished for them. They ate together. And when Jesus ate in his resurrected body, did the food drop through to the ground? Yeah. No, because he wasn't a ghost. He says, I am not a ghost. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. We will have flesh and bones because our bodies will be like his. So with the bucket list thing, you think, well, oh, yeah, I want to go visit uh, Lake Victoria in Africa. Well, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. There's going to be new uh, nations on the earth, the kings of the nations of the earth will bring their treasures into God's kingdom, uh, into the new Jerusalem. We're told this at the end of Revelation 21, continuity between old earth and new earth. Present bodies will be resurrected. Right. So I can say, I will serve God with these very hands. Yes, these hands that will be resurrected into a, a permanent uh you know, incorruptible state, and also the new earth will be the old earth made new. So there's a new Jerusalem. Might there be uh, a a new Paris, uh, a new London, a new Riverside? Why not? But in any case, natural wonders on the new earth, yes, we're told of a mountain. Uh, We're told of uh, uh, the river that flows through the the throne. We're talking about the tree of life, which is now a forest of life that that grows on both sides, that yields a new fruit for Mm. people to eat every month. So we will eat and drink. So on the bucket list, it's like, no, 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 the very best that we will ever experience on this earth will not be experienced here and now, but in a new earth with new bodies, the old earth made new, the old bodies made new, uh, my favorite food very likely is one that I've never tasted yet, and I will taste for the first time on the new earth. Because not only will the food be better, but our taste buds will be incorrupted, uncorrupted, and we will be able to experience all God has for us. Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What does that mean? Because here I'm talking about heaven. But I'm living here on earth at the time. And how do I lay up treasures in heaven? Well, I think uh, clearly in Matthew 6, when you compare it to some parallel passages where he says similar words, he is talking about giving. He is talking about taking earthly treasures and doing something with them. And laying them up in heaven. How do you do that? How do you turn an earthly treasure into a heavenly treasure? And and the, the answer is by giving it over to the Lord so that it can bring the gospel to the nations. So it can bring the gospel to our communities. So that it can feed hungry people in the name of Jesus. So all of these good and God-honoring things can be done. And as long as I hold on to it, it's a treasure, earthly treasure that I can lose. And that's what he's talking about. Moth and rust and thieves break in and steal. As long as I call it mine and hang on to it, then it can be lost. But the moment I give it to the Lord, it's yours, Lord. It belongs to you. You own everything. Here is the first fruits. 
generous giving. Here you go. Use this. Use this as you know best how to use it. And you know what? For some of us, the call may be, Nancy in my life, the, the, the call to us that we believe is, we, we live a, you know, a good middle-class life, but a lot of uh, book royalty money coming beyond that, but we don't need that. And so we give that. So everything that's above and beyond, we give to God's kingdom. And we're, nobody should feel sorry for us, but we are able to lay up treasures in heaven, we believe, and that we will experience someday. But meanwhile, the joy that you have in giving. Jesus said, in fact, the book of Acts has one single statement uh, made by Jesus that's not in the Gospels. And it's, uh, it's uh, chapter 20, verse 35, where it says, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that word translated blessed means in the original language, it means happy-making. It is more happy-making to give than to receive. Nothing will bring you greater happiness and joy than to invest, to give, to lay up treasures in heaven. Do you think that tithing is something that is still relevant for today for a person living in the new covenant, or is that merely an old covenant teaching to bring your tithes into the storehouse? Like Malachi, uh, in the book of Malachi, God says, bring all the tithes into my storehouse, says the Lord, and see if I will not open up uh, the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you won't have room enough to receive it. Is that still applied to today, do you think? I think to a degree it does. And, and here's, I think that scripture, these Old Testament passages, is sometimes we think, okay, we're no longer under the law. So for instance, we don't need to keep the Sabbath. But yes, but is there a principle of yeah. a day of rest? Is rest being built into our lives something God still advocates? And I think the answer is yes. So no, you don't have to keep all the detailed rules, but let's set aside the day of rest. I think the same thing is true with the tithe. I think there's a timeless truth in it. Take the first fruits, mm-hmm. um, you know, the giving of the, the first the, and the best. Give that to the Lord, and that's kind of symbolic that the other 90% belongs to God as well. I kind of take a middle position on the tithe. Some people say, oh yeah, well, we got to live under the tithe. doesn't matter. It applies to us just like it did to the nation Israel. And then I say, well, you know, I'm a little hesitant on that because do you do that with all the other commands? Probably not. But then there's people that go to the other extreme and they say, Christians shouldn't tithe. I've literally had people say, because you're, you're putting yourself in bondage. You're putting yourself under the law. You know, if, if you tithe. And I say, no, tithing is, is like the training wheels on a bicycle. I look at God's old covenant people. They did the tithing. So as a new covenant person, I say, okay, God, do you want me to give just at the level that those people gave? Or do you want me to give less than that? Yeah. Or do you want me to give more than that? Well, at very least, how about I start by doing what you had them do? And it can't be a bad thing. I mean, God had them do it. How about I do it, not thinking I'm earning favor with God, not checking off the box, not being legalistic, but just saying, okay, to help me get up on the bicycle of giving, I'm going to use these training wheels of tithing. And that's how I view tithing. You know, these, uh, this little talk we're having will be seen by people later. And, and there's probably someone watching this right now, or maybe even here with us, uh, who is suffering. They're suffering deeply. Maybe they have cancer. Maybe they've just lost a loved one. And they're a Christian. So what hope do you offer them? Well, certainly uh, the promise of 
ultimately the new earth for all those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The promise of resurrection, not just temporarily going to heaven, but the new heaven that God will bring down to earth to live there for all eternity. Scripture says those who are believers now will be with the Lord forever and we shall see God's face. God is the source of all blessing. God is a happy God. We're actually told that in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6, that same word that's in in, in Acts 20, Mm -hmm. makarios, that he is the blessed God is the translation. Mm -hmm. But anyone uh, that lived and spoke the Greek of that day, if they were to translate it in English, would say the happy God. And when the King James Version was translated, that's what it meant. The happy God. He is the blessed God. The happy God. And we will live with the happy God and the source of all happiness for all Mm. eternity. And we will see his face. We will enjoy his presence. Scripture says, uh, Psalm 1611, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that, Mm. with that promise, blood-bought promise, Jesus shed his blood on the cross to gain for us that eternal happiness. And that should bring great encouragement to anyone, even in their present suffering. I have a, a, a good friend who is dying right now. Mm. And uh, that dear woman, I've been saying her lots of verses of scripture and great quotes mm. about heaven. And, and she is about to enter the presence of the Lord. Mm. And she truly has a joy, even in the midst of some serious suffering. Mm. Heaven's not the default destination of every person, though, is it? There is a hell. And Jesus spoke more about it than all the other teachers in the Bible put together. So how does one make sure that they will go to heaven when they die? How can they guarantee that? First and foremost, we need to realize there is nothing we can do to earn status before God. You you can't chalk up points. You don't have this little checklist. Well, if I do this, this, and this, then God will let me into heaven. Mm -hmm. If that's the way you you think, you are thinking completely wrongly, and tragically, unless you change that point of view, you won't end up in heaven in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Because Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. We'll have nothing to boast about. So what I have to do is recognize my moral bankruptcy, the fact Mm -hmm. that I am a sinner, that I do not deserve heaven. I actually deserve hell. But Mm -hmm. Jesus, so to speak, took hell upon himself on the cross so that I, through trusting in him and his redemptive sacrifice, will be able to experience heaven in his presence forever. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Greg goes around preaching everywhere. That's the gospel that he preaches here. That's the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And really, in the end, what is more important than the gospel, the good news of salvation Amen. in Jesus Christ alone? That's right. I. Uh, that's right. I did an interview with Pastor Chuck Smith, who's in heaven now, uh, only weeks before he died. And I said, Chuck, if you could preach one last sermon, what would your text be? And his response was John 3.16. And I said, now, why do you choose that? I think I knew the answer, but I wanted to know his reason. He said, well, it's the gospel. You know, it's the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the hope. 
And uh, for any of you that are listening or watching and you've not put your faith in Christ, so we want you to do that today so you can know with certainty that you will go to heaven when you die. And so I would like to close in prayer and, uh, and give you that opportunity to make that commitment to Christ if you've not done that yet. So let's all pray together. Father, I pray for any here, any watching, any listening that do not yet know you, Lord, Help them to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone so they can know with certainty they will go to heaven when they die. And you that want Christ to come into your life, uh, maybe you would just pray this prayer after me right where you sit. And just pray this after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a savior and you died on the cross for me and shed your blood and absorb the wrath of God in my place. And then you rose again from the dead. Now come into my life. And I choose to follow you. From this moment forward. As Savior and Lord. As God and friend. Thank you Lord. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Hey everybody. Greg Laurie here. Thanks for listening to our podcast. And to learn more about Harvest Ministries. Please subscribe and consider supporting this show. Just go to harvest.org. And by the way, if you want to find out how to come into a personal relationship with God, go to knowgod.org. That's K-N-O-W-G-O-D.org.